Hello, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and upcoming data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level directly from industry leaders and executives making a difference out there in the world today. My name is Felipe Flores, and I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you're having a wonderful week. And today we'll be speaking with Marek Rusinski. Marek is an extremely interesting guy. He spent about 16, 17 years working in Accenture, where he was managing director for Accenture Analytics. I met him during that time. We had fantastic conversations. This is many years ago now, but we had fantastic conversations then. He has a wealth of experience across pretty much every single industry out there, a real passion for helping companies get value from their data from that time and background before that he had before that, which he tells us a bit about as well. And also over the last year or so, Marek has moved into the ATO, that is the Australian Taxation Office, where he is the Deputy Commissioner and Head of Smarter Data Program. The Smarter Data Program is one of the main five strategic projects that are transitioning the ATO into the future, into what the ATO of the future is going to look like. And Marek, as Deputy Commissioner, is leading the charge in the Smarter Data Program, the main data transformation program there. The ATO already had a really strong data science functions, and what they're doing now as part of this program is fascinating. Marek tells us about it in this episode. I hope you enjoy it, and definitely stick around to the end, hear from our sponsors, and and love. Here's the episode with Marek. Hi, this is Felipe, and today I'm speaking to Marek. How are you doing, mate? I'm all right, Felipe. How are you today? Uh, great. Thanks so much for making the time. Great to be speaking with you again, and thanks so much for being on the show. Not a school pleasure to be here in this virtual room. Let's roll. Perfect. So at the beginning, I always like to ask our guests, how did you get started in the data space? What was it that brought you into the field? Look, I think the context with me, it's bit more unusual, but it also relates to the fact that I've been around the space for quite a long time, and that's 20 plus years now. When you cast your mind back to that far back, probably you can't, but some of you guys may. At that time, data analytics was very much a specialist field, known by few, right, and done by even fewer. At that time, basically, when I came out of uh, university, I had a background in marketing, but I was always interested in marketing more as a science as opposed to purely creative discipline, which that was at the time. I always felt that data collected by customers, could be used to interact with them in a much more precise fashion. And this is even before the emergence of the internet, to be honest, right? Because you get lots of access to more classical market research and classical statistical techniques and so forth. And for me, that was always an opportunity to change the way that marketing is perceived, to change the way that marketing is used in, in the organizations, and really change the narrative and the engagement model with the clients and customers. And look, and lo and behold, 20 years later, marketing as a discipline has been virtually transformed due to emergence of data as a key driver for engagement with the customer. If you look at the key players in the digital space, key organizations that have grown and are dominant around the marketplace right now, they are very much backbone on marketing as their key core discipline, more importantly on data that drives the insights to engage with the consumers. That really is the genesis in regards to how I got involved in analytics, because by being involved in marketing and really driving it as a science, I got to see the activation of different data sources, the activation of internet as a channel of interaction, the activation of internet and some of the ERP capabilities as 
various channels for generation of data, and then obviously flipping the lens to the organization, figuring out how to engage, educate, and activate the value from that data. It's a really interesting parallel story, at least for me, in regards to how that discipline has really shadowed the emergence of analytics as a key discipline right now, how analytics now has transformed itself from something that was in our cul-de-sac and a field for specialists to something that really now sits at the center of many organizations in regards to providing the lifeblood for its decisions and really creating the canvas in regards to how to engage with the consumers and clients. So that really is in a nutshell. So when you when I reflect back, I'm actually not a classical data scientist that's been trained robotics or machine learning and so forth, because those disciplines at the time were very much emergent and very, very much specialist. What I view myself more is more of a data strategist, where I can really delve into the organizational needs and potential in regards to how we can utilize the data to transform or drive value to its customers and obviously to the shareholders as well at the end result. Yeah, I don't know if it helps you, but it's a slightly different perspective, I guess, yeah? It is, and it's a great one. And there was a couple of words that you said that I always thought that you are particularly good and strong in this area. When you said around engaging, educating, and activating the value that can come as a result of data, could you tell us a little bit about how you got started in that space and what are your approaches are? I think that again, you know, very much from the marketing perspective in regards to trying to engage with the consumers. But I think, you know, the most concrete first emergent examples that I've experienced was when we tried to utilize data at scale to drive the way that some of the retailers present themselves to the market. This was during my time in, in Asia. There were a number of retailers that, that we worked with across, you know, Hong Kong, Taiwan, China, Thailand, where they had vast amounts of data that were sourced from their point of sale systems, had a vast amounts of data in regards to their pricing data sets and merchandising databases, which could be then relatively easily combined and mashed up with demographic data that was present for those countries to allow mm-hmm. us to develop a much richer landscape in regards to you know, how their stores perform. And this was even before the internet being a major sort of channel for retail and really then allow us to present their stores in a much more relevant fashion because we could, for example, you know, do effective store clustering that was based on demand patterns that were observed at SKU level for each of the stores, i.e. sort of item level, we could organize amount of space given to each of the categories, so X amount of space for soft drinks, X amount of space for laundry, etc., etc. It sounds prosaic and it sounds pretty basic, but it's amazing how those decisions were made in isolation of the data. Right. They were reliant on the gut feel of the store managers or further, they were biased by the deals that the retailers were getting from the suppliers to basically push specific, specific products. Whereas in fact... That is sort of quite opposite to being customer centric. So by introducing those data sets and going through the process of really understanding the patterns of demand and then pushing those through in regards to the operational layer, suddenly you have a major aha moment, major demand upshift, a major performance shift from the stores that were actually tailored to that perspective. Now, 15 years later, that's a common pattern. But the first project that we did around this space was back in 2001, 2002. So at that time, it was relatively new to do this thing at scale. And the last yes. word scale is quite important because it's one thing to do a POC and feel good about it, but it's very much another thing to actually roll it out at scale to get the multiplier effect in regards to the ROI from the potential. And for me, that's where the excitement is, right? I don't get excited by POCs. I get excited by the ability of the organization and, and helping the organization to actually move from the POC hell to mm-hmm. something that is actually scaled and executed at scale and becomes part of BAU. Because at that point, that strategy has legs. And at that point, the proof points start to speak for themselves. And at that point, 
you're basically entering an era of virtuous cycle where the good results create more interest, which then creates traction for new products, which then really creates a turning point in regards to how the organization perceives data as an asset and also how the organization perceives the value potential that could be realized from tapping into analytics data at scale. Correct. That is the key. Do you see a lot of organizations getting stuck in that POC hell? Look, it's, it's a common pattern that really relates to the amount of maturity the organization has in regards to engaging with data, not just at an esoteric level, but at an operational level. And POCs are essential. They have to happen to create you know, baby steps, that crawl, walk, run scenario becoming enacted. Yes. But what has to happen is that the learnings have to be taken and the team that does the POCs has to have the mandate from the organizations to pursue scale. If the aim is to do a POC, that doesn't quite cut it because straight away you are limiting the translation of potential and the scale it can achieve. You're saying, well, we'll do a POC. Yeah, I don't get excited by that. If we do a POC in the context of a broader path to scaling the capability, to rolling it out and creating a point of view in regards to the size of the price, that creates a burning platform to actually go after that price. And I think, and I think a lot of, a lot of organizations sort of, you know, forget that. They get excited by hiring a bunch of data scientists, pontificating about the problem, spending six months collecting the data, another six months analyzing, then presenting hmm their doubts, standing back and admiring how beautiful they are. It is so true. And why do you think that that's the case? Do you think that people uh, or organizations struggle to create a data strategy that gives them a framework that the POCs can sort of grow up into? Do you think that people are missing the direction? Or do you see that it is something else, the reason why organizations get stuck and don't realize the value from their efforts? Oh, look, as always, there is no one answer. This circumstance has got different nuances to it. But at the same token, there are a couple of foundational bits that are required for it to move from that POC to an industrialized capability in rollout. And it is one-on-one stuff, right? You need to have understanding and sponsorship from the C-suite. Unless it comes from the mm. C-suite, gets engaged proactively with people that can create that vision and can really explain the potential and the mechanics of it, not just the mystique, the mechanics of it, then it will not happen. So the moment you shift from having a mystical POC to having a mechanical process that has inputs, process, outputs, and rinse and repeat, yeah. then you start to really shifting the mindset of the organization. To do that, then you need to say, okay, well, if I've got the intent from the top, have I got the potential candidates and the value from the business? Can the business translate the potential into targets? Because that way we're creating the prize. Once you got the prize, then have you got the capability and the technology and the skill sets, not just to do the science, but mm. to manipulate data, to do the science, to translate the outputs into something that is understandable, actionable by the business, right? To also leave the ego at the door and be able to be, you know, critiqued because the critique from the business in regards to the viability of the solution or the feasibility of the results needs to be there to create that iterations of refinement and learning loop to actually get to that price. You're not going to get to that price straight away. You will be off. POCs are rarely perfect, but mm -hmm. if you learn from the POCs can be internalized in the context of the price and the context of the intent, then you've got the path to go after it. And if you don't have those, then you're stuck in POC hell because you've got no reference point. You've got no end state. You've got no price and the success criteria will be X and they may not be fulfilled and people say, well, it didn't work. 
let it die. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's true. Yeah, that is so interesting. So as you explained there, there's numerous hurdles to overcome in order to go from an idea to value realization. Tell me about your experience on the softer side, on the influencing, on getting people excited, on the execution to derive the benefits and essentially getting to rallying the troops so people get behind the idea. What is your focus or what do you discuss with people? How do you present the projects to get that support and that excitement from the organization? Yeah, so look, I mean, I can reflect on the journey that we've been here in ITO for the last sort of 10 months since I've joined, where the organization obviously has been utilizing data to drive interactions with the Australian citizens at scale for the last few years. That has created a virtuous cycle of business saying, I want more, yeah, which is good. Yeah, you want that. But at the same time, the team wasn't quite ready to consume and present stuff at such a large scale of iterations. So it's an interesting conundrum that we face here because we said, well, okay, you like what you saw, but however, to deliver it at a much larger scale to consume the appetite that you're presenting us with, we need to really reimagine how this whole thing works. And what we've done is sort of a couple of things. First of all, we've educated the business in regards to analytics as a mechanical process, right? So we translated analytics into a value chain where the business can see themselves in the process. They can actually see the process, right? In regards to prioritization, data inputs, the science, then integration, infrastructure layer, and so forth. And they can sort of perceive how the whole thing works. We then aligned our team to actually that structure as well. So we've got clear loci of capabilities that align to the value chain. And then what we did is we chose fortuitously, there was a, a lot of interest in regards to artificial intelligence and automation. So we used that topic to actually show how it can work at scale. So mm-hmm. to do that, we actually assembled a cross business team of all the business, of all the key stakeholders, right? That was then run by our team in regards to an ideation cycle for around eight mm-hmm. weeks. And we took them through the exploration of opportunities around chatbots and agents, RPA, you know, machine learning, deep learning, and so forth, because we stratified the conversation. So it's focused. And we went, okay, let's go, let's, let's generate ideas. And we went through ideation of up to 300 ideas, which were then profiled, wow. then progressively prioritized, respectively. But obviously, you know, having prioritization grid with 300 dots is quite undigestible. So we actually yes. went through the process of getting the whole team to socialize, you know, what the ideas were and getting them to workshop in regards to how what are the commonalities in regards to some of the use cases so we can actually breed lower number of larger use cases that we can reuse the techniques from. Because, you know, we can use the machine learning algorithms for multiple purposes. We can use the chatbots for multiple use cases and so forth. And we went down to about, you know, 60 plus use cases, which was much more digestible. And then we engaged them again in the process saying, okay, guys, well, you've got these use cases. We've stratified them by value versus ease of implementation. No rocket science there. But I would say, look, now we have to make the hard call. Which ones do we want to go after as the first ones that we're going to go to demonstrate the value. If that's successful, there's a whole stream of use cases behind each of the ML capabilities or DL capabilities or chatbots or RPA to the organization. And the guys actually, mm-hmm. that was tough because they were from different areas of the business. Everybody wants to be first, but because they went through the process of stratifying it, they understood the relative value. And they also understood mm-hmm. that, okay, just because my use case doesn't get done on day one, doesn't mean I'm out of the picture. We're actually trying to build a repeatable capability that we can then use to activate the other use cases in the stream. So we got to the process where we identified the exemplars in each of those, and we basically had them ratified, had them funded, and now the guys are building them. So, and the business is participating 
with a view that, you know, towards the back end of these little POCs, right, we will actually then create a map in regards to how we're going to build sustainable capabilities, scalable capability with a key roadmap in regards to the sequence of use cases that we're going to go after. That is something that is sort of ha- is harnessing the creative capability of the organization in regards to the value. It's creating alignment in regards to the board that there is a path. And it's also giving data scientists very clear limit in regards to this is what you need to work on because that's where the value is and that's the true priority for the organization. That is fantastic. That focus on building a repeatable capability and going through that filtering, that brainstorming and filtering and prioritization process is fantastic. How can you give me a little bit of detail around how that process has worked? As in how many people did you have in your team working through this? What were the skills like? What type of stakeholders did you have? What is this um these 10 months looked like for you and your team? Well, in this context, right, I mean, lots of stakeholders, but you know, the, I've got the remit to the board to deliver this. Mm-hmm. So I'm the conduit to the board. In this context, for the artificial intelligence and automation, we had about 20, 30 people from the business, various stakeholders from the analytics team, right, with clear leadership there. Obviously, involvement from IT team as well to make sure that, you know, we are aligned in regards to the infrastructure impacts. And it was hard. It was an unnatural act at the beginning. We developed very much a templatized approach. So it was very transparent. So, you know, we had an idea on a page. We had very clear prioritization criteria. We had specific workshops that, you know, the whole process of prioritization was baked off. So everybody was part of it. So it was very inclusive. Then have then the teams build project on a page, right? Then they build business cases that were, they had to be submitted to actually go through the POCs. And now they're executing the POCs. And it's interesting that while we're executing POCs in small scale, we also, in parallel tracking, making decision and exploring platform decisions. So, you know, mm-hmm. which platform to use for IPA, which platform we're going to use for chatbots and agents in the future, right? We're using, we've got stuff already, but saying, okay, what's the next gen yeah, that we require? What data sources do we need to activate to actually provide more fidelity to the machine learning models vis-a-vis the use cases that we want to go after? In that context, we're going after an area that is of interest to us around work-related expenses, right? Because that became quite visible in regards to the analysis that was done by our business to say, well, that's where the divergence is in regards to tax collected vis-a-vis tax potential. There's a tax And that was perceived as, you know, there's value there for the Australian citizens. So let's go and see what we can do to enhance our capabilities, right, in regards to identifying potential for the business area to go after the value there. So it's very much an iterative process, lots of stage gates, specific artifacts that backbone each stage that we can then refer to. And really the artifacts then allow the team to circle, to serve as an alignment point, to say, look, guys, here's what we're producing. This decision is going to serve as the compass point for the next one. And I think that allows the team to be quite structured and quite deliberate in regards to how they progress through the process. And some of it is, you know, created from scratch. Others are, you know, leveraged and refined from other sources, right? So it's not like those building blocks are unknown. It's the magic lies in actually orchestrating how you put them together into a process. Yes, definitely. And how have you found the transition from consulting into government? I think it's a relevant one, and I understand why you're asking that. I'm not really feeling that much of a difference because when I was with Accenture, ATO is the client of Accenture, so there's a high level of awareness in regards to what the organization does. ATO as an organization is quite progressive in regards to how it sources its talent, right? So there's lots of influx from the marketplace here at leadership level, and I think it tries to project a relatively nimble face. No organization is perfect, but I think you know the scale of it is quite enjoyable, and I think what, what excites me is ability 
ability to really play with analytics at a very large scale here and very, very immediate impact. What's also positive is that, as I've mentioned a few minutes ago, there is a hunger from the business and the board and the team itself to really shift gears of industrialization. There's few organizations that really commit themselves to that level and to have the ability to be part of that process right, and drive components of it. I think that's pretty exciting as a story. Definitely. I think it's fantastic. And we have so many listeners that are data scientists, that they are working in industry, sometimes sometimes in consulting or sometimes finance or telco. And they say to me that they would like to be having a different type of impact with their work. They wonder where they can find that. There's been a lot of people that have, that have asked whether they should go in and join a startup or go and work in health. And I think that obviously they're good options, but I think one that is often overlooked is going to do work in the government. And I think that you can have a real impact that benefits the country when you do that. Can you tell me a little bit about your motivations to make that jump? I think you've outlined some of them. Also, for me, there was a quite a long history of working of working in consulting, and it's and it's a fantastic field. But I was also sort of mentally ready to the other side as well. I've also noticed that the nature of the conversations between the consulting companies and the analytics companies are changing. If I cast my mind back 10, 15 years ago, there wasn't a lot of sophistication on the client side in regards to having those conversations, right? Because the capabilities were just not there. Therefore, the consulting companies had a much broader limit in regards to influencing the outcomes for the clients in this space. As this capability becomes recognized and activated as a more mission-critical capabilities across the client base, the clients obviously scale up and also are much more precise in regards to the engagement of consultants. That is not to say that the engagements are not strategic in nature, but they're more focused. Sometimes, you know, they're more sort of focused in regards to specific projects, specific streams, and so forth. So for me, if you cast your mind back as a data strategist, it is interesting to now go to the other side because the other side, the client side, is ready for that strategic input to sort of really have those conversations and have the voice at a more senior level within the organizations to really drive the narrative, not just manage the team, but also evolve the organization itself and teach the organization and teach the populace of the organization, I guess, to how their jobs will be changed as a result mm. of data analytics really permitting their everyday processes and everyday activities. That is quite interesting because it's a more broad-based perspective. That is so interesting. And it would be such a dramatic change for your organization. How are you taking them on that journey to new skills and what the future of the ATO could look like? Yeah, look, so I think that's the whole banner of what I call sort of democratization and industrialization of data analytics. And for me, it is about really demystifying it, mechanizing it. So I think that conversations that we had a few minutes ago in regards to presenting analytics as a very structured process, backbone on a value chain, relatively transparent, it can be explained, creates a lot of aha moments in regards to clarity of engagement with the business. They can see where they can influence the outcomes. They can see where they need to engage as a client and they can see how the team works works with them to achieve the objectives, right? So I think for me, education in regards to how analytics works is an important first step because that allows you to then have the conversation, well, where is the value? Then if you combine the value chain with the potential value potential, you then generate a roadmap in regards to what's possible okay? and then you go mm-hmm. after it. A lot of work being done on infrastructure level, which has started before I arrived and will continue for a long time, I'm sure, because it's a never-ending job. But you know, really strengthening the data backbones is quite important because because if you have a value chain,
chain that describes the process. And if you engage the business in regards to the value, but then you cannot deliver on the promise, that obviously creates dissonance. Yeah. So you need to make sure that you can actually deliver on the promise. And that relates in regards to organizing the team, having the right skills, having the team engage the business. So, you know, we've created what we call client account managers, basically. So we've got person that is on point to speak to each area of the business. So they are our ambassadors to the business and they're the voice of the business back to the team. And that team in itself, because they got a remit to understand what the demand of the business is, they need to create a superset of requirements and priorities for our team to work on. So they need to basically mm-hmm. trade off between each other to say, okay, what are the true priorities that we need to actually assemble our work plan on, both strategic and tactical. And that is important because that allows a level of specialization that relates to each part of the value chain working with purpose and precision and really forming that chain. The whole infrastructure layer is quite important because the data has to be trusted, has to be organized, has to be protected, and has to be accessible as well to the business. And the last thing is, obviously, besides the veracity of the and the sophistication of the modeling, which is there, there's a lot of skills, is the actual presentation layer. How do the analytics get delivered to the business? Because, you know, getting them delivered via a static report or a spreadsheet is relatively passe. You want to create products, you want to create interactive experiences, applications, and yes. you know, and that's there's still a way to go there, obviously. And very few organizations have a perfect output, right? And I'm not going to pretend that this is a perfect output here. We still got a way to go, but I think the mindset is there to generate apps, generate more interactive experiences with the business, and really automate a lot of that, and as well push a lot of the capabilities to the business. Because for me, mm. in the next three to five years, the role of the analytics team will change as well, because a lot of these skills will be quite sophisticated in regards to the products and the business will be enabled to do the analysis themselves through guided user experiences. And therefore, the analytics teams will have to shift their focus from doing the churn work and building the models, parameterizing to actually thinking at a much higher level, ideating with the business and having those 103, 104, 105 conversations opposed to having 101 conversation every day. There is a changing landscape there. So there is still a way to go, but I think there's also the path. A hundred percent. The path that you're putting together and forging, it's fantastic because the breadth of this initiative and I'm thinking of the, I guess we're, we're talking about the, the Smarter Data Program. That's one of the key strategic initiatives yeah. in the ATO and, and this being your main area of focus. The breadth of this initiative is amazing. Like it's, it's huge. It's transformational. It's whole of ATO covering so much risk, intelligence, analytics, data management, technology, decision making. It is fascinating to hear the inner workings and how it is going. And what do you see as your current and next set of challenges in the initiative? I think proving out the scale and the repeatability as we orient the team to work hand in hand with the business, as we elevate the understanding of the business around the out of possible, the expectations will continue to rise. Then the team will be challenged to live up to those expectations. So the management of those expectations, the ability to the team to say, okay, well, we need to evolve how we do work day to day. So it becomes much more structured, much more, you know, analytics factory focused, mm-hmm. much more specific in regards to understanding what the prioritization trade-off is. And and even more focused on the outcomes and the measurement so and so forth to allow us to have the feedback loop and to stay true to the priorities. I think managing that is definitely front and center right now. All of that is being managed in an, in an environment where we're getting much more data entering our ecosystems, where the data mindset is shifting from something that was end of period to event level to streaming data, which really 
has got a transformative effect in regards to data management and integration, the management of the coherence and the preparation of the data sets for analytics that are not happening on off cyclical level, but merely on a continuous level. That's a key challenge that again shifts the game up in regards to moving away from periodic analysis to a continuous production of insights. Correct. It is continuous production of insights. You need the infrastructure and the people and, and the automation. And tell me, uh, throughout your career, you've had such a strong focus on the customer and being a customer-centric. In this case, who is the customer? That's a complex thing. I think there are a couple of thrusts there, right? Obviously, ultimately, we are the customers as citizens in Australia because that's ultimately the remit from the office to actually you know, provide revenue assurance for the government huh? so that the government has got the funds to provide the benefits and the infrastructure that we all live day to day, you know, the roads, the, the hospitals, the schools, the defense, the police, etc., etc. So we as citizens are ultimately the, the customers. And prior to that, it's just you work your way up the, the food chain, right? So you've got the government who's a customer as well because you know we are the executional arm of the policy that is shaped by the government. Mm-hmm. So we need to translate policy into actions. Obviously, other agencies are clients as well because you know we work jointly with other agencies as well in a partnership. And then internally, you know, our clients are obviously are individual areas of ATO that both face up to the industry of citizens or work with them. And obviously then the clients inside those organizations in regards to how we support their, their workflows day to day. So it's a complex web, but one that sort of you know you need to reduce in regards to, okay, well, where's the business going? What are the priorities? But then also be very much aware of the broader ramifications of the work, right, in regards to the legislative impact and obviously the societal impact on the back end of it as well. And it's a valuable frame because that can be used to refine the prioritizations, right? If somebody gets caught up on that operational level benefits, it's sometimes useful to shift the conversation up in regards to, well, how does it relate to what we're trying to achieve in regards to compliance or legislation? How does it relate in regards to, you know, how I want the government to be perceived or the experience of this process to be perceived by the broader society as well. Yeah, that's right. That's an interesting aspect to consider as well. The communication side of the initiative and what people are perceiving as the benefits, the value, the journey, that's a really interesting area as well. How are you managing that side? Carefully. Good, bad. <laughs> so let's jump into some of the audience questions. So we've had a, a lot of questions from the audience. The first one I wanted to ask you is, what makes a great data scientist in your eyes, in your view? The answer to that question continuously changes as the mm. discipline evolves. So the answer would have been different five years ago. The answer will be different five years from now. I think today, what makes a good data scientist is the ability of that person to balance the technical and the engineering excellence in regards to doing the science. And that science could be very specialized or broad-based, it depends. But you know, having that mastery, the engineering mastery, but really combining that with an eye on value in regards to understanding why they're doing specific things because understanding why they're doing a specific thing allows them to refine how they're going to do that thing. And then lastly, I think for me is once they do a use case or a model or something, what really separates the great data scientists is their ability to connect with the ultimate user of their results, to be able to communicate, this is what the results mean, this is the process that I went through in plain English or whatever language you choose to use, to allow to connect at that user level, to allow the user to generate the level of comfort with the process, not at a technical mastery level, but at a conceptual level that, yep, I get it, understand how they arrived at the results and the conclusion 
conclusions and recommendations, and also be able to illustrate how those conclusions and recommendations can be integrated into the business or potentially help the user understand how they may need to modify their existing ways of doing work to really gain maximum value from those insights. So being able to sort of not just do the science, but advise on how to gain value from it. Yes, getting that value is so important. And as you said, yeah, connecting with the user, that's fantastic. And what do you think makes a great data science leader? What are the attributes of a great leader in this space? I think it's very similar to the data scientists, right? I mean, all those principles hold true for the lead as well, but also being able to lift the conversation up to be able not just to prosecute for individual users, but being able to guide the team how to prosecute the conversations across multiple user bases and also to engage with both the users on one hand and the data scientists on the other hand to figure out where the conversation is going on both sides, right? So where's the science going and where's the business going? And being able to reflect on both sides and refine the direction based on the insights gained from that analysis. That has the potential to generate clarity of purpose, which is based, I guess, facts, hopefully, but at least notional insights that are housed in relatively solid hypotheses that can be then played back to the business and played back to the scientists in regards to saying, well, this is why we're doing things. This is the relevance of X, Y, and Z. This is why we're putting X ahead of Y and so forth. Exactly. That is fantastic. What do you see as the current challenges in the data science industry? I think you can spear off challenges across all of those topics that we've been discussing for the last hour, right? If I look at the board level, I think lots of boards are still relatively uneducated around the potential of data, about the pitfalls of analytics and the potential of analytics as well. So I think there needs to be for greater level of presence at the board level in regards to that skill set, since it's being recognized as a mission critical skill set for most of organizations right now. But there seems to be a disconnect at the board level there right now. And like, you know, in ATO, ATO, I think we are a bit more fortunate because I think the board is very much focused on this, but this Mm -hmm. may not be true for other boards, right? So it's a hypothesis that I would probably want to put out there. I think keeping up with the technological progress, evolution, and the data that's coming at organizations right now, and ability Mm -hmm. to keep your head above the water and really making the choices is very difficult right now. And I think a lot of organizations have deer in a headlights moment in regards to data and technology because there's so many choices that need to be made. All of them look very urgent. And and unless you make them, you you won't be able to realize the value. And it's very easy to go into analysis paralysis there. But I guess the third aspect is, you know, really allowing the business to evolve the conversations around value because that can be used then really as a compass point, right? For the board in regards to this is important. And also for the technologists in regards to make your choices based on the true priorities of the business as they relate to this to this area and i think it's that that the triangle needs to work that our scientists need to work with the business need to work with it and the triangle needs to report in a prism fashion to the board i guess right yeah it is necessary really really great this is sort of a related but tangential uh, question how do you maximize the impact of your time in your day and in your week how do you focus on that maximum impact with your efforts and time I don't think there's any any easy answer. And I think most of us control certain elements of it and others are controlled for you. And it's very much the case in this context, right? A lot of the time is taken by, you know, structured engagement points with the various parts of the organizations, various streams of work that are run by committees and working groups. I think um, there is a clear intent 
from me to engage our team, not at just a strategic level, but very much at a tactical level. So have deep dives on specific projects, have working sessions on the projects as well to really test the veracity of the approach and really work at a call face level where possible. So you have to dip in and out. I don't think it's good enough just to operate at a high level. You need to dip in to the detail to allow to gain context in regards to operational realities, challenges and priorities as well. There's an art and science in regards to, you know, managing that cadence. Because if you spend too much time on that at a strategic level, I think you'll lack credibility unless you understand the operational level. If you spend too yes. much time at the operational level, then you won't be successful in regards to managing the strategic conversation and narrative. So it's that, bal- it's, it's that balance that needs to be achieved. And it's a never-ending story, I guess. Nothing's perfect. That is fantastic. Thank you so much for this. It's been absolutely fantastic. I only have just one last question for you. And that is a takeaway or a piece of advice that you would like to leave the audience with. What would be a good sort of end of podcast message? In this context, I think it's all about respect. I think the data scientists need to, and the data analysts and data engineers need to keep the word respect at the front of their brain lobes because analytics is a team sport. No one will be able to mm. succeed their own. If your model is fantastic, but the data that goes into it is suboptimal, you won't get the value. If the data set that you assemble is incorrect because you didn't really engage with the business in your conversation, you know, the output's going to be rubbish. If your data and model Model is perfect, but then your ability to communicate the insights in a respectful and, and impactful manner to the business stakeholders, your model will not see the light of day and the value will not be realized. So I think, you know, being respectful of your peers, of your stakeholders, and really, you know, create that awareness that you are a part in a broader activity set and make sure that you, you know, create those handshakes on left side and right side to ensure that what you do actually connects people and helps the process. That is fantastic. Excellent note to end on. Mark, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your journey and your insights. It's been absolutely excellent. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Felipe. Great to speak with you again. Let's not leave it so long till next time. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Excellent. Datasource Services is Australia's leading executive search and recruitment provider to the data and analytics industry. Datasource is chosen by many of Australia's most successful and innovative analytics teams, working closely to understand customer needs and deliver the top performing candidates in the Australian market. From executives and directors through to project managers, BAs and technical specialists, our deep networks allow us to source the highest calibre of candidate. Our consultative and personalised approach to the recruitment process ensures the highest level of service and care across both contracting and permanent roles. Whether you're looking to hire or searching for your next career move, please contact will at datasourceservices.com.au for more information. Exciting news, listeners. University of New South Wales has launched a new Master of Data Science and it's 100% online. They have designed this program to deliver the skills that are in the highest demand and most difficult to find. It covers the advanced stats, programming, machine learning and strategy areas you need to be able to call yourself a true data scientist. To find out more, visit studyonline.unsw.edu.au. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. 
If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.